It's the 3rd of April, 2020. This is the Room Now podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. We're a month into this pandemic, and boy, the numbers are sort of staggering. The information is changing almost daily. Uh, the concepts that we have to wrap our heads around continue to sort of blow our minds and challenge us as clinicians. We're going to review what we've learned in the last week. This week on the podcast, we're going to feature a few new things. At the top, we're going to talk about a town hall meeting that we had last night. This was a COVID town hall meeting for rheumatologists. I sent out an invitation to a few thousand rheumatologists and about 800 showed up to watch six panelists discuss the key issues surrounding the coronavirus and rheumatology. Our panelists included Alvin Wells, Artie Cavanaugh, Alan Matsumoto, Kevin Winthrop, Cassie Calabrese, and myself. We entertained a lot of questions, I think almost 50 questions between each other and the audience. Uh, it's an hour and 24-minute broadcast. You can see it on the website. Uh, you can look at that site right there, our COVID-19 update site, or you can look at it on our YouTube channel. It's an hour and 24 minutes. Uh, settle in. It's jam-packed with a lot of good information. We tried to get to as many questions as we could. There are many more. We'll try to address them this week. Also on our update site, is a nice video that you should look at from an infectious disease consultant, Dr. Jade Lee here in Dallas. I asked Jade five questions about many issues, including uh, PPEs and masking, uh, what to do with package deliveries, managing our room patients once they get infected, uh, issues on testing, and how to work with your ID consultants. It's a good interview. Also, another interview worth watching is my interview with Dr. Philip Robinson from the University of Queensland. Uh, Philip was one of the spearheading individuals behind this Global Rheumatology Alliance and a very important registry where rheumatologists are entering their patients who have either proven or suspected coronavirus infections. The data at this point are very interesting. There's 110 patients who've been enrolled, about 38% of them are rheumatoids, 17% lupus, 17% with psoriatic arthritis, 75% uh, are in remission, 45% uh, are on biologics, 22% were on hydroxychloroquine, there were 5% deaths. And interestingly, the patients on hydroxychloroquine were people getting sick and sometimes going to the ICU. So there's a lot of questions that are going to be answered by this registry. If you have a patient, you should go to room-covid.org, room-covid.org to enter your patients and learn more about this evolving story. Uh, so what do we have to talk about? Uh, a few Twitter entries, I think, that were very notable. Uh, Eric Topol put up a Twitter feed that said the U.S. death rates are doubling um, every 2.6 days, which means uh, 100,000 deaths by April 11th and 200,000 deaths by uh, April 14th. That could be underestimates. Um, and the question is, are we going to flatten the curve or not? And what are we going to do about it? You know, um, at the beginning of this week on Sunday, the 29th of March, I put out the information that there were 123,000 
cases of COVID-19 in the United States with 2,112 deaths. Dr. Fauci on the weekend news suggested that there will be over 100,000 deaths, could be as much as 200,000 deaths uh, if we don't do something to flatten the curve. Again, that was 329. Here we are on 4-3, and we already have over 5,000 deaths. I saw one website last night that said it was over 6,000 deaths. In New York City, we're having 500 to 800 new deaths daily, and the numbers are going up. This is scary stuff. We need to be armed with data, data that we can help manage this problem for our patients uh, and for our society. Uh, there was an interesting uh, tweet about the irrational use and coveting and hoarding of hydroxychloroquine during this pandemic. Obviously, it's inexcusable for anyone to covet or hoard hydroxychloroquine when patients who need it are going to benefit from it. That's our lupus patients, our rheumatoids, and the ones we've, that have been on it for a long time. I think it's important to pause think about this and actually look at our video from last night from the town hall where we pretty much dispel any proof that hydroxychloroquine is the panacea for this pandemic. It is not. Um, there's evidence that it may not work and the evidence that it works is based on an uncontrolled 26 patient study out of France. It's even weaker for the azithromycin story. So clearly, people who are ICU, hospitalized, on a respirator, doing badly, yes, give them hydroxychloroquine. But for us to be stockpiling hydroxychloroquine to either prevent this infection, that would be goofy. To um, give it to, our, to, to people and family members so that they can self-medicate, no, that's really bad. So again, let's pause and think about this. So... The question is, um, what can you do about biologics during uh, your, your, the COVID uh, disaster that we're dealing with? There's a lot of guidance, one from the Ontario uh, Rheumatism Association, from the American Academy of Dermatology, uh, even the ACR. Don't stop your therapy. Don't stop the biologic. Again, that may put patients at risk for inflammation. And those who are inflamed are the ones who are going to be immunosuppressed. Like, there's a lot of ridiculous ideas out there that you got to stop, you know, the medicines that have been working for the patients and keeping them under control. It's not clear that you're immunosuppressing them. It's very clear that you're controlling inflammation in them, and inflammation is highly damaging, as we discussed last week. So if you haven't seen the numbers, the numbers are repeated over the last few days that the number of cases in China, specifically in the Hubei province, are down. And, and there are no new cases in the epicenter of where this started. And life is returning to normal in that area. The, 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 the shut-ins and the lockdowns have stopped. People are out. Traffic has resumed. People are working. Um, they're still dealing with the aftermath of this infection. But life is changing, which does put an end in sight, but this is not going to be at the end of this month. We're gonna peak sometime later this month with uh, uh, hot infections and deaths. Uh, so we need to be vigilant across the country. Everyone has to do their part. Um, there've been a number of different actions by the FDA this week, um, some unrelated to this whole Corona business. Uh, Lily, 
uh, has uh, TALTS, and actually that was approved by the FDA for use in pediatric patients with mild to moderate, uh, I'm sorry, moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. The FDA also removed or strongly recommended the removal of ranitidine or Zantac from the market um, due to its ongoing investigation with a, a, an impurity in there that really seems to get worse over time and with higher temperatures. Zantac is going to be off the market and for good reason. The FDA did approve over the weekend the investigational use of convalescent plasma in patients who have um, gone through a, COVID a proven COVID-19 infection. The use of convalescent plasma to treat people who are sick is really based on very little data, although there was a five-patient trial that was reported in this last week's uh, JAMA of people that were in respiratory failure on a ventilator, um, critically ill, high viral, t viral loads, um, not responding to other, other therapies, and they were treated with steroids and convalescent sera, and three of them were discharged two weeks later. The other two were better uh, and recovering. So that's all in, in important. The problem with convalescent sera, however, is that in other viral infections and other infections, it's not shown to work. It's often not doesn't work. So this is clearly experimental at this point. Speaking of experimental, on 331, the FDA granted emergency use authorization for chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine in people who have the COVID-19 infection. It is experimental, but they, the FDA justified this saying that under the circumstances that there is enough data out there to authorize the emergency use of these agents in patients who may be sick. They're not authorizing the use as a prophylaxis. It's in people who probably are hospitalized. Uh, as we talked about in some of the videos we did this week, it turns out that people who have this infection, 80 plus percent of patients who get this infection are gonna be mild to moderate symptoms, stay home, and you know what? They don't need to be treated. They don't necessarily need to receive hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin, definitely not azithromycin in my opinion, but look at the video by the infectious disease specialist, Dr. Jade Lee, and that we discussed that there. The FDA also, in issuing this emergency use authorization, did put out a fact sheet for families and patients regarding the use of hydroxychloroquine. That may be a useful resource for your clinic. There was a warning in Twitter this week about prolongation, uh, QT prolongation in people who are taking anti-malarial drugs, and that could be uh, a, a serious um, unexpected side effects, and it could be even potentiated in azithromycin, but the cardiotoxicity of antimalarials is a rare event uh, and is often with use. Yes, the, uh, the FDA has reported, or there has been a report in France, of death and cardiac problems from the use of chloroquine. Uh, and there are reports of, of, of cardiac deaths going back many years with chloroquine for, man, for, for the use of malarials, but, uh, for malaria. But again, these are rare events. Um, there are a lot of misconceptions about the safety of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Uh, for most people, they're going to be fairly well tolerated. There is no um, uh, hyperkalemia associated with this. There are some cardiac and myopathy issues with this. Um, we reviewed that, and there's actually a, a daily download slide that you could look at the side effects and some of the concerns for the antimalarial drugs that are now in use. Uh, so the, there are several questions now about the um, impact 
of comorbidities on outcomes with the corona infection. The CDC this weekend released an MMWR um, uh, report on the impact of three specific conditions, um, coronary artery disease and heart disease, uh, diabetes, and patients with chronic lung disease. Turns out that these uh, conditions are, uh, across the board in the United States, um, prevalent to the tune of about 10% for diabetes, 10% for heart disease, and 6% for COPD. They did an analysis of over 122,000 infections. They had data on over 7,000 regarding the uh, comorbidity uh, issue and what it did to the ultimate outcomes. The bottom line here is that patients who had those three comorbidities were more likely to be hospitalized and, or be in the ICU than people who did not have them. So amongst non-ICU hospitalizations, if you had a comorbidity, and again, we're talking heart disease, lung disease, and diabetes, um, you were more likely to be hospitalized 28% versus those that did not, 7%. As looking at ICU admissions, um, they were more frequent, 14%, if you had these medical conditions versus 2% in those without. This begs the question of our patients with rheumatic disease and the immunosuppressant and anti-inflammatory and biologic use are our patients at risk? That's one of the big topics of discussion in our town hall meeting that you can look at. The bottom line is that there's a surprising paucity of our patients who are thus far affected uh, and have been hospitalizations. That is really the purpose behind the Global Rheumatology Alliance Registry, and we hope to collect data, and you should be adding to that information. We need to wait and see. Lastly, our last report is on universal masking with COVID. This was a report in um, the Thursday edition of Room Now. It was also in this week's JAMA. It's uh, been discussed by the CDC whether there should be more widespread use of masks for either patients or hospital workers. Hospital workers, it seems pretty clear. If you're on the front line, if you're interfacing with uh, patients who are sick, possibly symptomatic, possibly infected, or clearly infected, you need to be fully masked, gowned, etc. Uh, it turns out that um, full universal masking is being recommended for screeners and people doing registration uh, to come into clinic. Um, this seems to be prudent. People who are dealing with patients who are hospitalized, they're being fully protected with masks and the full garb um, and gloves, etc. cetera. Uh, really, the question, though, is should all healthcare workers be using masks or not? Should patients or people out in public be using masks or not? A, a month ago, I did a tweet saying it's not necessary. The recommendation is it doesn't work. And the truth is it doesn't work. There's a minimal return on the use of simple surgical masks or cloth masks or handkerchiefs over your mouth. It does cut down to a marginal amount. And a month ago, that didn't seem to be important. Now, it does seem to be important. So the New England Journal specifically talked about healthcare workers. <clears throat> it turns out that in China and Korea and Southeast Asia and many hospitals, uh, it turns out that um, masking is standard of care for frontline individuals, healthcare workers, um, and this is being a, 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 this is becoming a growing recommendation. The problem, of course, is that there's going to be problems with PPE personal protective equipment shortages, and masks 
over time, and especially in high, uh, uh, dense, densely uh, infected areas like in New York right now. I think that um, healthcare workers should probably be wearing masks. I wasn't wearing masks when this first started. I was advocating hand washing and wearing gloves. Now when I'm seeing patients, I will mask and wear gloves. I don't need to use gowns. I think again, frontline people, people who are going to be ex, uh, exposed to people who are infected, they should be doing masking and the full, you know, package, which is, you know, hand washing, eye protection, gloves, gowns, and physical distancing for high risk individuals. The rest of us, I think we should be wearing masks and gloves when dealing with the public. I think patients should wear masks when they come to clinic and they are symptomatic or infected. Now, should we be using them out in public? Right now, it doesn't seem to be prudent, but I would not discourage it. It may provide a margin of protection that um, could be beneficial given some of the numbers I quoted at the top of this broadcast. I think that um, the more you're around others or, or around large groups of people time-wise, uh, especially if you think they might be infected and you don't know, um, 10 minutes or more, you might be wearing a mask out in public if you're a patient or someone's shopping in the store. That wouldn't be wrong at this point in this story of the pandemic of uh, 2020. Why is it called COVID-19? It seems to be a big problem in 2020. Well, it started in 2019, but it's going to go through the rest of this year at least. That's it for this broadcast. Go to the website. You can check out the citations for the things we discussed today. Um, and you can also find on our website the town hall meeting that was recorded last night. Tune in next week for more info.